that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared when we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Oh. <laughs> there, um, there's a table out the front where you can get more information on Bloom, but there's also some samples there of some of those magnificent little biscuits, different patterns, designs, and so on. So I commend that to you. As we are, have been doing for most of this year, I, well, a fair bit of this year, is for our Connect groups, we've written some questions. Those questions are available here this morning. They would have been sent to you electronically if you're in a Connect group leader. And it's over there near Raymond that's standing behind him. There's a few copies over there if you would like to grab one of those to reflect on and to um, consider what God might say to you through this portion of his word. We're starting a new series this morning on 1 John. It's the same author as the Gospel of John, so it's similar ideas, concepts, similar writing style, but there is also some uh, appropriate points of application. We'll talk about why he wrote and how that's relevant to us, but also the concepts of that which he writes is spot on for us this year as our theme is to connect with one another, connecting with God and then overflowing from our relationship with God of connecting with his people, with our brothers and sisters, and then flowing out of that, reaching out to others that they might come and know the Lord Jesus too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again that we can gather together. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done for us. Father and Spirit, the plan of salvation. We thank you for the gift and the presence of the divine spirit. We ask that he might take your word, the scriptures, and enlighten us this morning and speak truth into our lives so that we might be better equipped to follow Jesus and also better equipped to share the truth with others. Lord, achieve your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I entitled this, The Word of Life. Remember how the Gospel of John begins? In the beginning was the... And the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John takes up exactly the same title, the Word of Life. And in John chapter 1, he'll go on to talk about this Word was the life. He gives light and life to all who come into the world. What's the background to this epistle? Well, this is written by, as we uh, said, the Apostle John. He is the last living apostle. All of the other ones have been martyred. John is the only one we know, know of who was not martyred for the faith. He died as in his much older years. This is like 80, 90, in the 90s AD. So it's 60 years after the Lord Jesus has ascended and gone back to heaven. Uh, the Apostle Paul has passed away. He's been executed, beheaded in the city of Rome in the 60s. Uh, Peter is the same, executed in Rome. James, likewise, in the 60s. All of the apostles and all of the significant church leaders we read about in the book of Acts have passed on. John, you remember, was the one who was to look after Jesus' mother, 
Mary. And some conjecture, that's one of the reasons why John lived an extra long life, in order to take care of her, to bless her. Imagine having such a person alive and in church. Somebody who actually saw and spoke with the Lord Jesus, touched him, walked with him, was present at many of the miracles and certainly all of the miracles he wrote about in his gospel. If you could ask John one question, what would it be? If there was one thing you wanted to know about Jesus, I wonder what it would be. So, the church has spread. The Apostle John has moved uh, to the region of Turkey around Ephesus. And he's got a lot of churches around Ephesus that are linked with him and his influence. And he writes this letter, not just to one church, but to all of the churches surrounding uh, the major city of Ephesus, but all the outlying little villages and cities as well. And that's where he also writes to John and 3 John, two of the smallest letters in the New Testament. Into that region, over the decades, some other people had moved into the churches. In the ancient world, just like in our world, uh, there are people who have different beliefs and different ideas. And just like today, people will sit down and they'll start thinking about what was Jesus like. And it's more a product of their imagination and some of their knowledge that they have about other religions that they try to marry those together. Well, sure enough, back in the first century, there was uh, many people who attempted to do that. And one group in particular was what we later um, knew would become a group called Gnostics. They're quite diverse, just like we have different denominations. So there were a variety of a group of people called Gnostics. The Greek word gnosis just simply means knowledge, no. And these people, generally, they had, a general, they had an idea that they had extra knowledge. They, they had a secret. They had insight, in, inside information uh, that involved the mysteries of the faith. Uh, it wasn't dealing just with uh, biblical revelation. They had added to it. They'd taken from different religions and they'd mixed it up together. And, and like I said, they had various branches or levels of it it would become much stronger and more prominent in about the next 50 to 100 years from this point in time. But the beginning of it, the roots of it, are certainly there, and particularly in this region around Ephesus. There was one group of people, they were called the Ebionites, they were Gnostics. They denied the fact that Jesus was God. He was a man. He wasn't born of a virgin, he was born of Mary. Just a normal human being. Very special human being, but just a normal man, just like all the rest of us, and that at his baptism, the Christ consciousness, this entity that permeated the universe, you know Star Wars, you've seen Star Wars, you know how the force, that idea is behind this idea, that permeating the universe there is the logos, the word that behind all of these sorts of things that happened, the Greeks had observed in daily life that there was an order to things. Seasons followed seasons in an order. That there was structure, that the way the sun went round regularly uh, circulated, and the moon cycle and so on, there's an order to this. Well, where does that order come from? Well, they conjectured that it came from some wisdom that permeated and controlled everything. The Logos is what they called it, which is the word John uses quite deliberately. For us, if you think, like Star, think of Star Wars and think like the Force, that's the concept they have, this impersonal, 
powerful uh, force, power, which permeates and controls and orders all things. Um, well, these guys believed Jesus was just a man and that the, that force came upon him at his baptism and left him when he was on the cross, which is why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the force was with him, the logos was on him and with him for his earthly ministry and that's how he did the miracles and so on that he, he did. Um, another group of Gnostics under that sort of influence, they were... Um, Serinthus, which we know of, was another early leader of, um, of the Gnostics and he was in the city of Ephesus and John knew him personally and avoided him like the plague. Serinthus believed that Jesus didn't actually have a body. That what you saw was a phantom. He's a, well, a hologram. You know, he just sort of appeared. If you went up to Jesus and you went to hug him or touch him, your hands would just go through him. It's like a ghost. That when he walked... He didn't leave any footprints because he didn't have a body. He wasn't here. So it's in that context, with that background, with these sorts of people now influencing the church and coming into the church and sharing their ideas and their Bible study groups and so on, that eventually a group of people, they influenced a group of people and those people left the church. And John writes about that in chapter 2, verse 19. They left us, they went out from us because they didn't really belong to us. They weren't really followers of Jesus. They were not truly born again and they started another church, another group and still sought to influence the church. And John writes, to guide the true, the true church, his followers of the Lord Jesus, the sheep, um, to guide them in the ways of truth. I better keep doing this, but no. <clears throat> Why is he writing? He says, I'm writing these things to you um, about those who are trying to lead you astray. If you read through John, you can do it in half an hour or 40 minutes or so. Read it through carefully, you'll find that he picks up on that theme. I'm writing this to you for this reason. If they say this and do that, this is the result. Here is the truth about Jesus. If they say this, it's all the way through the letter. Why else did he write? This is a key verse, 1 John 3.23. Look at the balance. And this is his command. One to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and two, to love one another as he commanded us. Believe in Jesus, love one another. That's what John's about. That's his big message. That's his theme. In fact, in his senior years, John was now in his, like, 90s, and too weak to walk, they used to carry him, this frail, elderly apostle. They would carry him to the assembly of God's people in church, and every Sunday they would ask him, John, do you have anything you want to say to us? And every Sunday he would say the same message. Have you noticed that about older people? They repeat themselves. They say the same thing over and over. You'll notice that when you find some older people. There are none here this morning, but <laughs> there's a clue for you. When you start repeating yourself, like I am now, <laughs> it's a clue that you're getting older. John, they used to, John, you got anything to say? He would lean up on one elbow, the story tells us in church traditions, history. Little children, love one another. Next Sunday, John, you got anything you want? Little children, love one another. Young adults, young people, of course, got bored with that. They do, don't they? So do we. So they would go to John, they went to John and they said, John, why do you always say 
Little children love one another. And he called them little children because he's quite elderly. And when you get elderly, everybody else is younger, aren't they? Hello? As I look out this morning, I see a lot of young people. <laughs> it's all relative. Why do you say little children love one another? He says, because it's the command of the Lord Jesus. And if you don't do anything else, it's enough. Wise words, isn't it? Particularly if you burrow and dig deep into the meaning of what it means to love one another, then you're encapsulating the truth of the New Testament. That's why John wrote, believe in Jesus, love one another. He also wrote, chapter 4, verse 1, Dear friends, many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognise the Spirit of God from the false prophets, spirit of error. Everyone that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he was human, that you could touch him, that's a truth, a truth teller because he was real. He was here. And most importantly, John writes these things to you who already believe so that you might know that you have eternal life. The Gnostics would go around saying, you don't have eternal life. You've got to have the secrets. John is saying, no, you just need Jesus. And if you have the real Jesus and you've got the truth about him and you accept him and embrace him, then you might know that you have eternal life. It's assurance of salvation. And if you read through the letter of John, I, from memory, I think you'll find 10 uh, tests, 10 type examples of things of, if this is true in, for you, then you're in the kingdom. There's about 10 different aspects to it. Um, generally speaking, when John writes, he gives a fourfold answer about Jesus, this th historical, theological, moral and social. This is just an overview, then we're going to jump into the passage. Historical answers. He would say that Jesus Christ is a, is a fact of history. It's not based on feelings, fancies or fiction. It's not just an idea that somebody has dreamed up or created. It's part of history. He was here. Space, time, existence. It actually happened. Of that we can be very, very sure. And even today, the debate continues amongst scholars, amongst people in the community. Was Jesus historical? And it's amazing the answers they come up with. It's not so much them responding to facts and information, it's more hoping, it's, they're hoping it's not true. Because if it is true, there are certain consequences that follow for us. It's theological, what you believe about this person, that he was both fully God and fully man. He is the God-man, and he still is. He is God himself in flesh here. That's the theological answer. There's a moral answer. If you believe in Jesus, if you have his life, eternal life, then it'll lead to some change in your life. You'll have his new life. You'll be obeying his standards. You'll obey his commands. You'll see that in your life. And finally, it has a social dimension, which is the you'll love one another. A person who doesn't love other Christians is not a Christian. A person who does not love other Christians, not a Christian. That's the implication, John says. If you say, as you read through John, I love God, I love Jesus, I just can't stand Christians, I don't love them. John says, he's very uh, subtle in what he says, he says, you're a liar. 
He is in your face. So there are the fourfold answers that John will give. Whoops. In the United States of America, of course, they did a survey amongst people. It'd be interesting to see if we did one in Australia. I suspect that it might get some very similar results. What would you change? What would you like to be different about your life? Think about that for five seconds. What would you like to be different about your life? The answers that came in, I'd like to change on the inside and be a better person, didn't even get a mention. That's not on the list. I'd like to be smarter. That was second on the list. Number one on the list, I want to look better. Everybody say amen. You're easily misled, you lot, aren't you? They want to look better to do with their body shape and appearance, their weight, their hair. Oh, I wouldn't mind some hair. <laughs> their face. They'd like to change their age if they could. There are all of those sorts of things. And they went across to California, of course, and to San Francisco in particular, and conducted the survey again. And, and they found out that people wanted to live, they wanted to change their age, they wanted to live forever. And in fact, in California, when you passed away, there are certain funeral directors where you can pay the appropriate sum of money and you can have a coffin that has high-fidelity CD music piped into it so that you can listen to your favourite CDs and music while you're waiting <laughs> for the resurrection. Yeah, while you're dead. For a little bit more money, you can get one with a screen. And it's got a camera on the outside so that you can see the people who come to visit you. Incredible, isn't it? And people pay money for that. If you're interested, we can start up a ministry like that. No, we can't. People with all sorts of weird and strange ideas, even Walt Disney himself, you know this, what is it? Cryonic? Cryonics? It's where you freeze. For him, it just froze the head. Uh, now that they're freezing whole bodies, and the idea is, the hope is, that and you're spending tens of thousands of dollars for this, and not cheap, um, that you'll be in deep freeze, and so that when science advances, then they'll be able to bring dead bodies back to life again. So then they'll thaw you out and restart you. That's their hope of how they will live forever. Sad, isn't it? What do you think is going to happen to Walt Disney's head when they thaw it out? It's going to melt. It's not coming back as a head. Just people driven by foolishness. In the Greek, there are three words, and John uh, alludes to them, but one in particular. There is bios, there is the physical life. We're used to that one. We used to talk about biology. That's the physical realm. We know when a person is alive, physically. There is also suke, which is your inner life, your soul, your personality, the real you. As I often say, um, sorry, um, the inner you. It's like, if you look at photos of me when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was newly married, when I was whatever, a few years ago and then even now, remarkably, they're all different. Isn't that surprising? Not. But it's still me. My outward body is changing as I age, but it's still me. My inner life is still me. And then, this is the word that John likes to use, it's zoe. 
Zoe. We would pronounce it Zoe. It's Z-O-E, but the E has got a long A sound on it, Zoe. And that's referring to everlasting life. It's a spiritual quality of life. It's the eternal life. It starts now and goes on. In fact, Jesus says, John 3, verse 36, that if anyone has the Son, they have, right now, have eternal life. You have it now and it goes on forever. Not in this body because this body changes. We get a new one, praise the Lord. Like this one, but different as well. But it starts now and it goes on to eternity. Here is what John has to say for us. There are five things that he says, and I'm going to have to hasten. Eternal life centres around a person. The Apostle John begins his letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and this and touched um, this we proclaim concerning the word of life there's no introduction there's no blessing there's none of the normal characteristic things of ancient letter writing in the uh, first century there's no from john to this church blessings and so on he's just straight into it he's straight to the point and the point is jesus he's not mucking around and he's not hesitating the word of life centers around a person the word the logos of life. This life appeared, was manifested, came into our world. We have seen it and we testify to it and we're telling you, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has come to us, that has appeared to us. John's meaning is very clear that Jesus is this eternal divine being. He is the Logos, not of the ancient world understanding. John is theologizing it and Christianizing and saying, that which you think about the force in Star Wars, that's Jesus. It's just like people today will speak about Mother Nature. No such thing. Mother Nature is Father God. That's him at work in our world. That's how he permeates all of creation. And this life has appeared to us. John says, that which was from the beginning, wherever the beginning was, Jesus is there, and everything starts after him. He, the Father, and the Spirit are before all time and all matter. <clears throat> he was from the beginning. We have heard him. We have seen him. We've not only seen him, we looked at him. We examined him thoroughly and carefully, and we even touched him, particularly in the upper room. Luke chapter 24, when Jesus appears to them on that first Sunday night, and he says that they heard him speak, peace. He said to them, they looked at him, they examined him. He invites Thomas a week later to come and touch him. He ate fish with them. John's recalling all of those sorts of experiences. He writes to the Christians to say, don't forget this. Jesus is fully human. And as I observe, I think one of the things for us I'll say evangelicals, and I haven't got a better word than that at the moment, but the evangelical seems to be coming um, too broad and too general a term to classify those of us who we are Bible-believing, Christ-following, relying on God's grace, people, the gospel. But anyway, generally, evangelicals, we don't tend to have too much trouble with Jesus being divine. I think we've got that nailed. He's the Son of God, he's God the Son, he's Lord of all. We're always exalting him and that's appropriate because he's worthy of it. We struggle with his humanity. 
we struggle with really letting him to be as low as us. We become uncomfortable with it. For 33 years, he experienced all that we experience. He was weary. He had bodily discomforts. He would have had B.O. It sounds almost irreverent, doesn't it? But the real Jesus of history is really human. You've got to let him in, in order that he can take us out. He identified with us in all of our humanity with one exception, he never sinned. Which means that he was tempted like you've been tempted and he never gave in. So his wrestle was harder than yours. When we get tempted and we wrestle against it and then eventually we get tricked or whatever or we just get fed up and we give in to it, Jesus never did. He blew his nose, he would have coughed, he certainly sweated. I wonder if he snored. I bet he did. He did. Jesus snored. So it's okay. <laughs> Snoring is not a sin. Amen? The Lord Jesus was fully human and John is writing to emphasise that for us. Jesus had a sense of humour. He enjoyed a laugh. He loved kids. He was fit. He was lean. And he was strong. He had stamina. Sometimes he would skip meals and sometimes he would sleep less than we do. He seemed to be focused or driven, if you like, on his mission, his purpose, and he was eternal. I wonder what it was like for the apostles when it first dawned upon them, when they first began to realise Jesus is not just special. Jesus is not just anointed with a spirit. Jesus is just not somebody that God is working with and that God is with and in and through, but that he is God. I wonder what that was like for them. It would be unbelievable initially. You'd say, oh, that can't be right. And you'd come back to it, but the evidence keeps pushing you there. He not only healed people, he forgave people their sins that only God could do. He even said it, claimed it. And so they come to realise that this person that they're associating with is fully divine. Eternal life centres around a person. That person is Jesus, human and divine. Number two, he must be personally received. That's what John writes. Yet to all who, John chapter 1 verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. That's John chapter 1 and verse 12. Jesus has to be responded to personally. You have to receive him. Five times in this letter, chapter 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5 particularly, John will mention you're born of God. The very words that Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again, born of God. We must be born of God personally. There are no um, two-for-one packages in this. My parents can't do it for me. Nobody else can do it for me. There are no family specials associated with it. I personally have to respond to this divine person, this divine human person, Jesus. Being in church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian. Standing in a garage doesn't make me a car. Wearing a stethoscope doesn't make me a doctor. 
If I sound like a duck, am I a duck? Quack, quack. Oh, I'm getting a nod. Yes, you're a duck. See, some Christians are so easily influenced, aren't they? If they think I'm a duck. But if it sounds like a duck, walks like a duck, looks like a duck, flies north in winter, is it a duck? You're not sure now, are you? <laughs> Probably. What I'm talking about is that there are plenty of counterfeits. There are people who say that they're followers of Jesus. There are people who call themselves Christians and they're not. As you read through John, you'll see the tests. And so the important thing for you to do is to analyse yourself. Not be judging, are they? No, no, the question is, am I? That's the issue. And just for the record, I am not a duck. I want you to imagine, have you ever seen a counterfeit note, a piece of money? Some of you would have. Um, I want you to imagine a $50 note, it's a counterfeit, and you get it when you go to the shops today, and you don't know it's counterfeit, but you take it, and then when you go to the shops, the grocery store, you go to the petrol station and you fill it with petrol, you pay with a $50 note, so now that $50 note has gone to somebody else, and it's done some good, got you a tank of petrol, or part of a tank of petrol. Then the guy who owns the petrol station, he takes the money, he goes to the grocery store and he buys some groceries with it and it's done some good for him. Now he's got food with his counterfeit money. And then the grocery store owner, he banks the money, he takes it to the bank on Monday and deposits it and the bank goes, hang on, that's a fake. While the counterfeit note, the fake, was in circulation, it was doing some good, wasn't it? But when it went to the bank, when it went to an authority, it was removed from circulation. So too with counterfeit Christians. They might do some good while they're here. But when they get to the Lord Jesus, he'll go, I don't know you. You're a fake. You're a phony. You're a counterfeit. You don't have the real deal. You're pretending. And so John is writing to help people not to be counterfeit and also to expose so that we can be discerning and speak the gospel to them. Eternal life centers around the person. He must be personally received. Eternal life should be shared. My time is gone, I have to really go. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and really our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim to you that which we have. So this is the sequence. Jesus, the God-man, came into human history. He was seen. He has to be personally received and if you've received him, then you are to share him with others. That's the sequence, we know the sequence. There's a couple of verses I threw up there that if I had time I would go through with you. I think they are key to our evangelistic strategy. We spoke about this at the end of last year for quite a few weeks. Both Colossians and 1 Peter, they talk about be ready to give an answer. Be ready to give an answer. The emphasis of the New Testament is not go on a street corner and shout out in people's faces that if they don't turn, they're going to burn. If they don't believe in Jesus, they go on to hell. If God called you to do that, then God bless you and you go do it. <clears throat> but for the vast majority of us, that's not the normal evangelistic strategy. The normal evangelistic strategy of the New Testament, and increasingly today, is relational. God has placed you in your family, in your neighbourhood, in your work situation, in your sporting clubs and all of that. He's put you there to build relationships with people 
so that they, by looking at your life as you live an authentic Christian life, they'll ask you a question. You don't have to raise the topic, just got to live the life before them and answer their questions honestly. I do want to take a minute to talk about that. Answer their question honestly. I think I gave you an example last week or week before of Rhonda and I going to the flight centre. So I just imagined, imagine somebody this week said to me, um, how was your weekend? What did you do on the weekend? And I said, this is what I've done this weekend. I attended the prayer meeting. I went shopping. I prepared a meal for our family to have today. I went home and prepared a sermon, a PowerPoint that I could do this morning. I watched a movie. I'm writing a report that I have to give to the church board. I'm going to have lunch with my family and two grandkids this afternoon. I'm going to interview a couple who are getting married tonight. And they're getting married tonight. I'm going to interview them tonight. And then I'm going to preach again this Sunday night. And the person says to me, out of all of that, oh, what movie did you watch? <laughs> Who did you tell them? Don't push it, don't force it. But if they're interested in spiritual things, as this young girl was that we spoke to at the flight centre, I said, oh, we went to church, we did this. And she said, oh, what church did you go to? Of all of the things I said, she said church. Not everybody will. In fact, most people won't. They'll, they'll think, and if you, if you, that's probably too big of an answer, isn't it? That's like if somebody said to you, how you going? What do they want as an answer? Good. How are you? Good. Fine. If you answer a personal question that's asked socially, how you going? Oh, my Ribs hurt, my legs are sore, my blood pressure's up. People are going, beep, 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 back away. This is a nut job. That was a bit loud, sweetheart, that laugh. Too much identification with there somewhere. Um, so it's be, just be yourself. Be the person God made you to be and just be honest. But you do need to do this, please. Uh, move on. Listen. Listen to what they're asking you. My Old Testament lecturer, who was a brilliant guy, and he was done it lecturing for 20 years plus, and he was a doctor, Dr. Vic Eldridge. He was a lovely man, Baptist pastor. But he'd been doing this introductory course to the Old Testament uh, for so many years. Students ask the same question year after year after year after year. So we come in, and we're asking questions. And one time, I can remember this because it's sort of grabbed me, it stood out, and I've never forgotten it. Somebody started to ask a question. Before they finished the question, he started to answer it. He thought he knew what the question was, and he didn't. He answered the wrong question. And that stood out for me. Listen. We all do it. People come to me, and they ask me the same sorts of questions all the time. And you get used to it, and you anticipate it. And if you're not careful... You're answering the wrong question. So we can do that. So listen to them. Let them know you're interested in them and you care about them and listen to what they're saying. In fact, probe. Jesus always answered a question with a question to find out exactly what they were asking. Stay on target. Target is not Hillsong. Target is not Brian Houston. Target is not some cult, some weirdo, something like Target's Jesus. Stay on target with Jesus if they're interested. And, that, and be yourself. Be the person God made you to be. 
Eternal life centres around the person. It must be personally received. This eternal life should be shared with others. We know that. Eternal life leads to a deepening fellowship with God and with one another. We proclaim to you what we've already seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. When you get the gospel, you'll end up getting fellowship with God, closeness and intimacy with him and with one another, fellow believers. And that's an ongoing, deepening experience. How is that going for you? How is your fellowship with God? How is your fellowship with one another? That's the emphasis and I don't have time to expand it. (laughs) Amen. What does that mean? Jesus calls us to be his followers. There are no Baptists in heaven. There are no Anglicans. There are no Presbyterians. There are no Pentecostals. Why not? Because Christians are in heaven. Believers. Children of God. Disciples of Jesus. We are not Baptists. We are followers of Jesus. We choose to be in a Baptist church because it's closer to what we think the Bible teaches. We are not superior to and we are not better than other brothers and sisters in other denominations. They are more ignorant and more uninformed. (laughs) That's not true. Fully. (laughs) So there are no Baptists in heaven. There are Baptists in hell. Sorry, somebody's yawning. I better move on. And finally, eternal life should be enjoyed. This is the very, verse 4, the Apostle John writes and says, I'm writing this to you, there it is, so that our joy might be complete. When he says our, he means mine and yours, complete, full. Being a Christian, we're not happy clappy and we're not joyful, we're not smiling all the time, we're not happy all the time, are we? Life happens. Not saying that. What John is talking about is this inner joy, this fruit of the Spirit inside of us, this deep security that even in the midst of life's crisis and terrible things happening, I have this deep inner peace or calmness, this joy, because I know the Heavenly Father, I know Jesus and I have his Spirit and I know I'm loved and accepted in him. This is talking about fellowship. Sometimes we chat about all sorts of things, but it's not fellowship. Fellowship has to do with what we share with others about our fellowship with God. When you talk about your relationship with Jesus and how you're going, whether it's good or struggle, when you're sharing that with another person, that's fellowship. It's what you're sharing in common. It's not talking about the boat or the cricket or the NFL draft or meals or anything else. I encourage you to work on your fellowship with God and your fellowship with other believers. We need to work, continue to work on that. There are the five truths. I think we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we want to give you thanks and praise for you sending Jesus into our world, that eternal life is now available to us for the asking for all of us who want it. I ask, Lord, that you would help each of us to continue to work on our fellowship with you and our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in your kingdom. Lord, have your will and your way in each of our lives. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless everybody. Please.